Hello and welcome back to the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, and in this series, Peter Silen and I draw on our many years of working in the financial markets to chew the fat about current topics of interest, whether it's stocks and shares, politics, diplomacy, or even books and films into which we sometimes also wander. We hope that you'll find some value in our friendly but uh, often very different perspectives, one continental, one UK-centric, on the big issues of the day. Today, Peter, I thought we would take a look at where we are in the markets. We've just finished the first six months of the year, which is quite a normal point to stop and reflect on what's happened so far. And I think it's fair to say, not for the first time, many of the experts have been confounded by what's happened in the first six months of this year. Certainly a lot of the clever people that I talk to are looking a little embarrassed at the moment because things haven't quite worked out the way that they expected. But that is the beauty and the frustration of financial markets, is it not? And what's your take on the first half of this year so far, as far as the financial markets are concerned? Before I tell you my take on what happened in the first half of the year, I wanted to remind us that there are never periods where things are clear. One is always surprised by this or by that. Things don't necessarily work out like one expects them to work out because there is this thing called Mr. Market in between. So if you go back to the month of October of last year, when we were discussing the market at the time, and we were both in agreement that it all looked pretty bad, the markets had gone, the stock market had lost a lot since the beginning of last year. So had the bond markets, there was nowhere to hide. And things couldn't have been worse. And we discussed whether things could get worse. And we agreed that things could get worse because they always can get worse. And of course, looking back, that was the ideal time, not only to buy shares, but also to buy bonds in general. And so the performance of the stock market since last October, up until the end of June, which we've just experienced, has propelled the markets or certainly not all markets, not the, the FTSE, for example, in the UK, but a lot of, especially the important markets in the US, back into bull market territory. So a lot of pessimists have said, well, how can you have a bull market in the middle of all this horrible pessimism and all these things that are going on? And before we discuss why, I just thought it'd be nice to remind ourselves how often the markets direction ends up by confounding us, even characters such as Moses and Methuselah, who've been around for a long time. But if we think about it a bit more, that is what markets are intended to do. They're intended to catch us unawares, wouldn't you think? Definitely. And I think uh, history is full of examples of that. And the shorter your time focus, as it were, the period over time in which you're comparing what people expected, what happened, the more likely it is that you are going to be wrong. And this is the great uh, fallback of all pundits is that you can say, ah, well, in the longer term, I'm going to be right. It's just a temporary blip. You know, something's gone a bit wrong, but the market's doing something really stupid. Mr. Market has got very excited about something, but I know where we're going and that's all going to be fine in the end. So yeah, a lot of red faces around for some people. And, but you know, the nature of the game. So not for you or I, of course, but uh, for those whose professional job is to try and predict where the markets are going, the more forceful your opinions are, 
the more dramatically you can be confounded. So if you come out with a really kind of strong statement, this is going to happen definitely, uh, which you have to do to get attention sometimes, if you're in the broking community or the other kinds of sell-side people, you have to get noticed, but then the more likely you are to get wrong. But on the other hand, no one seems to mind. I mean, people would never, <laughs> never go back and look at what you said a year ago, or very rarely, and the caravan rolls on. The caravan always rolls on, and that's a nice thing. The markets are always going to be longer lasting than their participants. They're also going to be, in the big picture, at the end of the day, they're going to be much smarter than their participants. And they're usually right, at least in the longer term, they're usually right. But what I found very interesting this year, apart from what we've described as the clash of titans, which we'll come back to in a minute, which is essentially Mr. Market versus Mr. Central Bank, We'll come back to that in a minute. But what I found very interesting this year is that if you have on the left side the bears and on the right side the bulls, I noticed that a lot of the bears are actually economists by profession. So economists have now concluded that the market is wrong and that the market actually is going to be conquered by the central banks who are ultimately much stronger. Whereas on the other side, on the right-hand side, in the bullish camp, are, if you want, a lot of the market participants who actually need to get their investment decisions right for professional reasons. And so you've got the camp on the left, which are economists who don't necessarily have other people's money that they manage. And then you have the camp on the right, which is people who do have other people's money to manage. That I found in itself quite interesting, including the fact that the bearish economists, who may well turn out to be right, are continuing to be bearish, are continuing to insist that Mr. Market is wrong, and they're continuing to insist that that day will come when they will have been proven right. We should probably start disentangling the various bearish arguments and compare them with the various bullish arguments, no? Yes, I mean, I think economists, as you say, are often wrong, particularly macroeconomists are often wrong. It's not because they're lacking in intellect or indeed, in some cases, you know, worldly experience, (laughs) at least some. It's also to do with the fact that trying to use a macroeconomic framework to decide where markets are going is incredibly difficult because there are just too many moving parts. You may remember many, many years ago in the UK, the Treasury invested some money to create a very early model of, of how the economy worked, which was a rather bizarre looking thing full of pipes and tubes. I don't know if you remember this going back a long way, about 50, 60 years ago, it was before computers. They sort of poured water in at the top and then everything flowed around in, in the way they thought it would and come out at the bottom. And that was pretty disastrous because the thing is, the, the world economy is just too big, too complicated, too many feedback loops, too many things are unknown. You know, we don't know how, as you say, participants are going to react, both in the markets and indeed in the, in the economy itself. So basically, let's face it, it's a mug's game to be an economist making forecasts. So I don't blame them for being wrong because it's just such an impossible thing to get right. And I think the only thing you could say in their defense is that though they are often the wisdom of crowds and all that, there's certainly a lot of truth in that. Market participants also have their own agendas to pursue. And in particular, if you're a professional buyer of investments or a manager of investments, you know, you are judged on your relatively short-term performance. So you do get these sort of swings in market behavior, which may not be, dare I say it, particularly rationally founded. But over the longer term, as you also say, these things tend to work out that uh, the markets get them right eventually. And those economists who have a long experience, 
they would have learned that trade at a time when the world economy was in actually completely different from what it is today. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean. And so when you go back to basics and ask yourself, what is the definition of inflation? Then those economists will quite understandably tell you that it means too much money is chasing too few goods. You remember that as well as I do. That's what we learned when we were young. But of course, it's the word goods which has seen a spanner being thrown in its works. Because if you go back 30 years, the world economy was completely different from what it is today. It was an industrial-based economy. It was a capital-intensive-based economy. And you could effectively have too much money chasing too few goods. For whatever reason, there were too few goods. And for whatever reason, there was too much money. And so the rather blunt instrument of monetary policy worked. It worked. But if you fast forward to today, you have a completely different economy. You have a knowledge-based economy. You have an economy which is more or less largely run by younger people, younger entrepreneurs compared with what they were at the time of the industrial-based economy. And therefore, you could ask yourself whether you have too much money chasing too few services. Now at a time where the and if you conclude that that is basically the case, then you must question whether the traditional monetary policy is having a desired effect or whether it's a sort of pushing on a string scenario. And then, of course, we can dig deeper into that and have a look at the various forms of home ownership and whether people have floating rate mortgages or whether, in fact, they have more fixed-rate mortgages than they used to, and therefore the effect of monetary policy is the time lag is much longer. And you have all these components. And I think that we are learning in the last couple of years of suddenly exploding inflation, and in the last 18 months of witnessing strongly rising interest rates not necessarily having the desired effect, or at least not yet, then I think it's quite legitimate to conclude that maybe this time somebody is missing something and we're completely on the wrong track and inflation is going to be around for a much longer time. I think these are legitimate questions. I don't have the answers. They are legitimate questions. Indeed, the world does change, as you say. I mean, one of the criticisms, though, that you can hear even in the economist community is that basically the modern world has rejected monetarism and it still has these kind of neo-Keynesian approach to things, which is just completely failed to spot what was happening with inflation. And to this day, a lot of economists who work in central banks don't take account of the very simple idea that there's too much money around. They don't monitor the, the monetary aggregates or at least regard them as being particularly important, which is why they got this whole inflation out look wrong. Well, I have to say, quite a lot of market participants got the inflation problem wrong as well. Before we had this thing, now everybody says, of course, we knew it was going to happen. There were some of us who did say that kind of thing. But from my direct experience of talking to them, a lot of professionals are incredibly sanguine about the outlook for inflation. They thought it was going to come down. They believed the central banks and they said it was going to be transitory. And they were, of course, completely wrong about that. Now the boot is on the other foot, so to speak. But again, it's very puzzling, isn't it? I mean, we all know that monetary policy, raising interest rates and so on, QE, etc., works with a lag. 
And yet people are already declaring victory one way or the other before we've actually seen the real effects of higher interest rates coming through. It normally takes about 18 months or so for that to happen. And yet people are already announcing the end of the race as if it's, uh, you know, but actually we haven't seen the impact yet. And there is a genuine question about whether or not central banks have raised interest rates too high too quickly or whatever. You always get that. There's always sort of clever clogs who say, well, you know, they're going to get it wrong eventually. You know, they should have stopped by now. But we don't know because we don't know the outcome yet. We haven't seen the full impact of the interest rate increases and the uh, change in QE to QT. We haven't seen that effect come through yet. So I think it's, it's premature to declare victory or to say that the markets have got this conclusively right rather than necessarily just still groping in the dark. I think we're most of us are still groping in the dark. Yes, and therefore the, the question of who's right and who's wrong is a legitimate question. It's just that I personally find it very difficult to declare that the market has got it wrong. I find that a pretty risky statement to make for the simple reason that in the medium term, now you can ask how long is the medium term, but eventually the market actually is always right. I'm thinking here, of course, primarily about the bond market and secondarily about the stock market, which obviously logically follows the bond market up or down. But you see, the, the longer these bond yields continue to be in a trading range, as they have been now for quite a long time, the longer you can legitimately state that the market is sending a signal which needs to be taken seriously and which effectively would mean that inflation is beginning to come down more or less quickly, depending on the country. And there's a big discussion, as we know, about non-core versus core inflation, ex-food and energy, and why that is so sticky. And we all know the arguments that because the service sector is now much bigger than the non-service sector, and that's where the tightness in the jobs market exists. And you can also then go one step further, uh, as some economists do, when they say that inflation numbers are something that you can play around with. Look at the various countries, look at the various components of inflation, the inflationary basket in various countries, and they're all pretty different from one another. And so you can interpret, you can rejig the inflationary basket in accordance with what you want to see. So you can manipulate it. And therefore, one can't take the inflation expectations and the bond yields seriously at a time like this is so uncertain. And those people are the very ones who say, stop listening to the market, start listening to the central banks. The central banks are the ultimate word. What they say counts and what they say they will do, they will do. And yet, if you look at the European Central Bank, what they've been saying, they've been saying we're scratching our heads because the monetary policies that we've put in place are taking much longer to come through. And maybe we're in a new economy where the services sector is much more important than it used to be. And therefore, maybe we're not conducting monetary policy as we should. And that is why, Jonathan, I'm saying that as much as I respect the central bankers, but at the end of the day, they're human beings and they don't have the same experience 
that bond markets and stock markets had because they're people of a generation who weren't around when we had the 1970s and the, the beginning of the 1980s. Well, I'm not sure I totally agree with you. I mean, one point I would make is that you're very lucky you're not a UK taxpayer. You live in, in Europe. But I don't think the bond market in the UK is, uh, the gilt market is in a trading range at the moment. You know, all the charts I look at, it tells it bond yields are still rising. And there's now not a single gilt issued by Her Majesty's government, which is trading on a, on a yield of less than 4%, which is an extraordinary change from where we were. And it's still going up. And okay, I grant you the US 10-year treasury looks like it's in a kind of trading range. But in the index link market, that still looks like that trend has not yet stabilized, I don't think. The bond market in the short term has been wrong. I mean, I think a year ago they got it wrong in what they were expecting looking ahead. But what hasn't changed is the fact, as you're quite right, that the kind of medium-term expectations that are priced into the bond market are for everything to come on back under control, inflation to come down, and bond yields will settle at some level. The big question, of course, is what level that will be. We could talk about that. But, you know, consistently throughout this whole episode, the last couple of years when inflation has taken off, the bond market has been saying it'll all blow over quite quickly, judging by the term structure and so on. But I wonder if that's true also. I mean, you've got to ask this question, which many people have raised. Is the bond market giving off the right signal at the longer end of the curve? Is it really giving off the wrong end of the signal? I did look up the numbers for these this morning, just because I knew we were going to talk about this. And as you know, the Federal Reserve owns 35% of all bonds issued by the US government. In Japan, the figure is over 50% now, owned by the, the Japanese central bank. And in the UK, it's about 35% as well. And some issues in Japan, as we know, this has been reported, uh, the Bank of Japan is reported to own more than 100% of a particular issue of bonds. And they are pursuing a very active bond yield control program. So the question I think you have to ask is, well, you know, is the bond market giving off the right signals? And uh, I do just know what you think about that. You're coming back to a subject that we discussed about 18 months ago or two years ago, which was the question, where do the yields have to go to meet the point at which, irrespective of whether the central banks own 35, 40, 50, 60% of the bond issues, irrespective thereof, what level does the yield have to rise to for it then to attract the marginal buyers, the perennial buyers, like the life insurance companies, the pension funds, the yield-hungry investors. Because the yield-hungry investors, when they see that bond yields have gone from zero to 5% in the space of a year or a year and a half, at some point, they will start licking their lips. And when they see, especially the pension funds, that their pension fund deficits have vastly improved because of the rising bond yields, then they will come in and produce, if you like, a floor to the bond prices or a ceiling to the bond yields. I'm very much in that particular camp. With regards to where the inflation rate ends up, and you're quite right in thinking that it could end up higher than the 2% that the central banks want, that is, of course, much early to tell. And the accompanying question, uh, let's say it's 4%, will the market be satisfied and will the market settle in? And not only the market, but also the jobs markets and all sorts of other markets, will they be happy to settle in at that higher kind of level? So I think these are the questions that are confronting us for the next six months or, or, or 12 months 
But the pound sterling situation and the guilt situation that you quite rightly mentioned, because my argument falls flat when looking at the, at the guilt markets, and I'm pretty shocked to see that guilt yields are back up to where they were after the unfortunate reign of Liz Truss as Prime Minister last year when she made that frightful budget announcement and it caused bond prices to collapse. Today, we're back at those levels of prices and yields that we were then. But then I console myself in thinking that the pound sterling is not in one of the mainstream currency blocks. And therefore, by definition, the life of the pound sterling and the life of the gilt market will inevitably have to follow its own life, a life of its own. And that seems to be what's happening, as you quite rightly pointed out, that it hasn't been in a trading range, the bond yield. It's been nudging up gradually and systematically. So I put that in slightly in brackets. I'll tell you how I really see this at the moment, and God knows I could easily be wrong. But I think we talked about this before. I mean, I, I'm quite intrigued by this idea of the fact that the financial markets are f- effectively trying to price in what is a trilemma. Not a dilemma, but a trilemma. And a trilemma is one where you have three things you're trying to achieve, and essentially you can only normally achieve two of them. You can't achieve all three at the same time. And if you look at it through that sort of prism to try and understand what's going on, and if you accept that the three issues are on the one hand, controlling inflation. On the other hand, what's going to happen to economic growth? In other words, avoiding a recession. And in the third one, very importantly, as we've seen recently, maintaining financial stability. In other words, avoiding blow-ups in the financial system. Witness the recent banking issues we've had in America and so on, Silicon Valley Bank. And if you accept that is a trilemma, that you can't have all three at the same time, or at least it's a very difficult balancing act, the question then to ask yourself, the common sense question to ask yourself, in my mind, is, well, which one is going to be the one that will be let slip? In other words, and to put this into sort of practical terms, will the central banks sort of drive economies into recession or will they let inflation rip for a little bit longer than, than the markets and people expect? And I think what the markets are trying to do is trying to price those different alternatives and uh, which one is better for the equity market and which one is better for the bond market is an interesting question. Is it a bad recession or is it higher for longer inflation? My common sense sort of approach would say that actually they're more likely to let the inflation one rip a little bit longer than people expect to the extent they're in control of it. And that is generally better for the equity market than it is for the bond market. But if it's the other way around, in other words, they do go all the way to the depot, as somebody once put it, and they kind of you know go on raising interest rates until something does blow up and we have a bad recession, then that's good for the bond market in a way because you know bond yields will come down and prices will go up. So I still think it's not just so much a, a clash of the titans between central banks and the bond market. It's also, to some extent, a bit of a clash between the equity markets and the bond markets. And I think they're not necessarily telling us uh, quite the same story. And that has happened in the past. We've had periods when the prevailing assumption in the equity markets and the prevailing assumption in the bond market is not identical, shall we say. And I'm very glad you brought in the third leg of the trilemma, because you're absolutely right. And the third leg of the trilemma, which you call financial stability, which is extremely important and very difficult to have a view on, because so much is happening in the shadows, in this what I call the hidden corners. Specifically, I'm referring to the shadow banking. The shadow banking operators who now have up to 50% of financial assets on their balance sheets, so that the disintermediation of the banking system is alive and well and kicking. 
And yet the regulation of the non-banking or shadow banking market, which is so important, has become so important, the regulation thereof is very mild. And the regulators are now more and more beginning to discuss and decide that they need to regulate for reasons of, of financial stability. And that's the shadow banks. But then from the non-shadow banks, from the real banks, and you remember that in, in the States, you've got something like four and a half thousand banks most of which are not quoted on any stock exchange, most of which have loans out to the property sector, commercial property in particular. My worry with regard to the trilemma and the third leg of financial stability is precisely there, because that can really catch not only us, you and me as investors unawares, but it can also catch the regulators, whether it's the central bank regulators or the non-central bank regulators, equally unawares, as they don't necessarily completely understand how these relatively opaque operations are actually conducted. So I'm very pleased that you brought in this third leg of the trilemma. And I think that we'll be looking at that and talking about that a lot more in the months to come, Jonathan. Indeed. So perhaps we should leave it there at this point. We talked at the beginning of this year about there being a certain element of a fog of uncertainty out there. And of course, there always is uncertainty. You keep making that point, Peter, and you're absolutely right. That's the nature of life and the nature of the financial markets, always trying to price in a set of moving targets. But I think what does appear clear also is that the central banks are, are groping, uh, whether they know what they're doing or not, they're groping to find out the, the right path. They're weighing up all these difficult things, and the markets are doing likewise. You know, if you're right about the financial stability concerns, it sort of implies what you're saying, there might be another blow up or two at some point, maybe inadvertently rather than deliberately. And we'll have to worry about that when it happens. Anyway, on that note, let's call this a day today, Peter. Thank you so much for your time as always. And we'll look forward to uh, the second half of the year when, well, who knows what will happen. We're about to find out. Thank you very much. I look forward to our next conversation, Jonathan, and all the best to you. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.